Hebrews chapter 1, let's begin with a question today. What is a Christian? How would you describe what a Christian is? How would you answer that question? I think J.I. Packer nails it in his book, Knowing God. And I highly recommend Knowing God to you if you've not read that book by J.I. Packer. But here's how he answers the question. What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Let me encourage you this morning at the outset of this sermon to look into God's fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves you. To look into God's heart, God the Father's heart, and come to grips and begin to realize how boundlessly he loves you. That's what Martin Luther said in his large catechism. He said, we may look into his fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, setting them aglow with thankfulness. That's what we'll see in the last part of verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 1. We'll see just how much God boundlessly loves us. So look at Hebrews chapter 1. We'll go ahead and start at verse 1. Hear the word of the God who loves us so much. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, in, under, in order to be able to understand what it means that God created the world through his son, Jesus Christ, we have to understand several things. Because that phrase, at the end of verse 2, through whom also he created the world. That phrase, is, that phrase is very pregnant with meaning and hope. I know it doesn't seem like it on the surface, but just like we saw two weeks ago when we saw the phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things, that phrase was very pregnant with meaning and hope. So too is this seven-word phrase that we'll be looking at today. There is so much theology oozing out of that phrase at the end of verse 2. 
through whom also he created the world. And what we're going to do today is unpack all of it, or most of it, because there's actually one more sermon that we could preach out of that phrase, and we might do it next week, not sure yet. But what we're gonna do today is unpack a lot of the theology that is found in this seven-word phrase at the end of Hebrews chapter one, verse two. So when the preacher of Hebrews tells us that God has spoken to us in his son Jesus, when he tells us that God created the world through his son Jesus, what he is doing is he is dropping theological bombs on us. Theological bombs that should cause our hearts to burst with joy. And the first thing that we should understand about God creating the world through his son Jesus is this, is that God did not create out of any need. God freely created this world, but not because he had any need. The triune God that we worship, Father, Son, and Spirit, is complete within himself. So it is out of God's own glorious freedom that he creates. He was never forced to create. No one tied Jesus' arm behind his back and made him cry uncle until he gave in to their wishes and created this world. No, Jesus created out of his own divine freedom. So buried within that phrase through whom he also created the world. Buried within that phrase is the wonderful truth that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, did not need to create because he was complete in himself. God had no needs in eternity past. God didn't need anything or anyone. He did not need to create anything in order to be God. He was complete within himself. And it is this God who is complete in himself and having no need, it is this God that decided to create the world. God did not create out of any need. So why did God create? The answer God created out of his triune love in order to share that love with others. The triune God creates out of the overflow of his eternal love and we were made to enjoy and respond to this love. We were made, we were created to get swept up in the love that exists between God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This is why God created humanity so that we would be swept away by his eternal love and then glorify him and enjoy him forever. But this poses a few more questions. Because the triune God is a loving, giving, and sharing God, did he need to create in order to be loving, giving, and sharing? Did God have to create in order to experience love? Did God only become loving after he created? Did he create humanity so that he would have someone to love? The answer to all of these questions is an emphatic no. God did not need to create in order to love. The triune God has been loving for all of eternity. God the Father has been loving his son Jesus in the spirit 
for all of eternity. Loving others is not some strange thing for God. Loving others did not start in Genesis chapter one. God has been loving for all of eternity because as 1 John 4 says, God is love. And now standing in stark contrast to the triune God of Christianity, standing in contrast to the God that we worship as Christians is Allah, the God of Islam. Allah is said to have 99 names or titles which describe him as he is in all of eternity. And one of those names or titles is the loving. But how could Allah be loving in eternity past? Before he created anything, according to Islam, Allah was alone. So how could he love? He was by himself. Allah could only love if he created something. That means that Allah is dependent on his creation in order to be who he is. Allah cannot be the loving unless he has someone to love. So he has to create in order to be who he is. He has to create in order to live up to his name. He has to create in order to be the loving Therefore, Allah is dependent on his creation in order to be who he is. And one of the cardinal truths of Islam is that Allah is dependent on nothing. But Allah is dependent. Contrary to what Islam teaches, Allah is dependent on created beings. Allah needs creation in order to be who he claims to be. He needs creation in order to love, in order to live up to one of his names or one of his titles. He needs creation in order to be the loving. And so Michael Reeves says this, therein lies the problem. How can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love involves loving another? Such are the problems with non-triune gods and creation. Single-person gods, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings. And so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be a frustrating distraction for the God whose greatest pleasure is looking in a mirror? Creating just looks like a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do. And if such gods do create, they always seem to do so out of an essential neediness or desire to use what they create merely for their own self-gratification. But this is not true of the Christian faith. We believe in a triune God. We are Trinitarian. We believe in one God eternally existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So it is not unnatural for the Trinity to love. It's normal. Loving others is not some new or novel thing that happened to God when he created the world. God has always been loving. God the Father has been loving his son Jesus in the spirit for all of eternity. And that's why God is not first 
seen as creator. God has first and foremost revealed himself not as creator or ruler of the universe, but first and foremost as father. God has first and foremost revealed himself as a loving heavenly father. He is God the father. And being a father means that God has an eternal son whom he loves, and that's Jesus. And being a son means that Jesus has a father whom he loves. And God the Father and God the Son were loving each other through God the Holy Spirit in eternity past, long before he ever created anything. And the preacher of Hebrews tells us in verse two that God the Father created the world through his son Jesus, through whom also he created the world. So that also begs a few more questions. What was God doing before he created the world? What was God doing in eternity past? Before God the Father created the universe through his son Jesus, what in the world, what in the universe, what in eternity past was he doing? What was God doing with all of his time? What what did he do in all of eternity past? I'll tell you what he was doing. God was loving his son Jesus God the Father was loving his son Jesus with this unique and quite dazzling intensity. I know we often wonder what God was doing in eternity past before he created the world. and It hurts our brains to think about eternity past. God has always been. No one created God. He's always been there all the way back to eternity past. And it hurts our brains to think about that. And so sometimes we think, man, it must have been boring. I mean, there was no internet, no Netflix. God couldn't binge watch a whole season of something on Netflix. There's no Starbucks. There's no nothing. I mean, before there was anything, anything, there was God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, loving and enjoying one another's company, if you will. And we think it must have been boring, right? But it wasn't. God the Father was loving his son Jesus with a dazzling intensity through the Holy Spirit in eternity past. That's not boring. Let me ask you this morning, is God's love boring? No. Please tell me that you don't think that God's love is boring. My whole existence as a Christian hinges on God's love. My whole existence and who I am hangs on God's love. God's love, receiving it and giving it is not boring. Tell me, is John 3.16 a boring verse? No way. So, was eternity past boring for the triune God? No way. And here's why. Because God the Father was loving his son Jesus in eternity past. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John 17. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, which is Father. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God sent Jesus so that we would get swept away like a tsunami with God's love for his son, Jesus. This is the foundation of the Christian faith, the triune God loving his redeemed people with the love that he shared in eternity past. The triune God created out of the overflow of his eternal love and we were made to enjoy and respond to this love. We were made to get swept up in the love that exists between God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. God created humanity, he created this world so that we would be swept away by his eternal love, caught up in it, enjoy it, and then glorify and enjoy him forever. That is not boring. Tell me, is that not the most exciting news in all the universe? It's what you were made for. It's what you were made to live for. It's what you were made to delight in. It's what you were made to soak up. It's what you were made to enjoy. Let me encourage you this morning to look into God's fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves you. And so lurking behind this phrase at the end of Hebrews chapter one, verse two, through whom also he created the world. Lurking behind that phrase is this truth. God created the world through his son Jesus because he wanted to share the love that he has been enjoying for all of eternity. So the fountain from which God's love overflows for all of his creation and all of his elect children is the fountain of God the Father's love for his son Jesus. Let me repeat that. The fountain from which God's love overflows for all of his creation, all of his elect children, is the fountain of God the Father's love for his son, Jesus. That's the love that we're to be swept away by. The water that's flowing, the love that's flowing from that fountain. Now notice that Jesus prays to the Father in John 17. This is very important for us to see. Jesus has a father. Yes, he had an earthly father. We know that, Joseph, but he has a father. In eternity past, Jesus has a father. So when we say that we are a Christ-centered church, when we talk all the time about Jesus, the son of God, when we sing about the life and death and resurrection and ascension and return of Jesus, when we rehearse the gospel here at Grace, we are not highlighting Jesus over the Father or to the exclusion of God the Father. When we say that we preach Christ-centered sermons, we are not highlighting Jesus over God the Father or to the exclusion of God the Father. In fact, by focusing on the Son, we are acknowledging that he has a Father. By talking about Jesus all the time, by talking about Jesus, the eternal Son of God, we are also saying 
that he has a father. That means then that the place to start when discussing God is to begin with Jesus the Son, not just God in some vague sense. Our discussions of God must start with Jesus because when we start with Jesus the Son, we have to then acknowledge Jesus the Son of God has a Father because sons have fathers. And this is exactly what the early church wrestled with and defended in the fourth century. Do you remember Arius? Do you know your church history? Do you know who Arius was? Do you know your heretics? Arius was the fourth century heretic that taught that Jesus was not the eternal son of God. Arius believed that Jesus was the first created being. Arius believed that Jesus was the first thing that God the Father created, or God created. He wouldn't call him the Father. He called him God. We'll talk more about that next, next week if we move on to verse three. We may hang out in verse two one more week. But when Arius started talking about God, he did not begin with the Son of God or even God the Father. Arius began his idea of God by calling him the unoriginate or the uncaused. And what Arius meant by these terms was that God was the uncreated creator. Arius began his discussions and his preaching and understanding of God by referring to God as the creator. The problem, however, with beginning any discussion of God as first and foremost creator is that you are defining your idea of God based on his works, based on what he does, and not by his relationships within the Trinity, not by his nature, not by his essence. Arius began his understanding of God as creator and not Trinity. Arius began his discussions of God as the creator and not the father. You know, it seems so subtle, like it's not that big of a deal, but it is. We must begin our understanding of God not based on his works, what he does as creator, but based on his essence, based on his nature, based on the relationships within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, because they were here before God created anything, and that must be our starting place. Who is God in eternity past? Any concept of God that does not, from the outset, include the mutual relations of Father and Son, the Father begetting his begotten Son, and that just means that the Son, that just means Jesus has the same nature or essence as the Father. We'll talk about that whenever we get to verse three in Hebrews But any discussion that does not include the mutual relations of father and son, that discussion bears no relation to the living God. It is Arian. It is heresy. And this is what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, which is why you need to know church history. Because these heretical teachings never go away. They just clothe themselves in something new. This is exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Besides the fact that Jehovah is a made-up name, that's a whole other point. You mention that to them, throws them off. Met a girl last week at Walmart and told her, that's just a made-up name. It's a hybrid of the consonants, vowels of this, and she was like, 
See you later. <laughs> Jehovah is not God's name. It's Yahweh. There's a sermon online if you want to know more about the background. But Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God's eternal son. They believe that God created Jesus. They believe that Jesus was the first being that God created. That's Arian. It comes from Arius. It's heresy, and it's not a biblical view of God. And this was the point that Athanasius made in the fourth century when he spoke out and called out the distorted view of God that Arius was teaching. And in his book, aptly titled Against the Arians, Athanasius said that we do not begin with God's works. We do not begin with creation and call him maker or creator. Athanasius said we must begin with God's son, Jesus, and that will lead us to call God Father. Here's how Athanasius said it. Therefore, it is more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works only and call him unoriginate. Athanasius was saying that you begin talking about God by talking about him as Father first and not Creator And the Council of Nicaea, we'll talk about that when we get there, which met soon after Athanasius' writing. They met and they discussed and refuted the views of Arius. They followed the advice of the young bishop Athanasius as evidenced by the way the Nicene Creed begins. How does the Nicene Creed begin? We believe in one God, Father All sovereign, maker of all things seen and unseen. Notice that the Nicene Creed does not deny that God is the maker. The Nicene Creed does not deny that God is creator, but it does not begin defining God as maker or creator. It begins with one God, the Father. And that's exactly how the writer of the book of Hebrews begins. Did you notice that? He begins by referring to God, the Father, Because he mentions God's son, Jesus, immediately. Look again back at Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God, that's the father, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The preacher of the book of Hebrews starts with God and then immediately mentions God's son, before he ever moves on to talk about God as creator. He starts with God the Father, then moves to Jesus the Son, and then and only then does he mention God as creator. So before we ever talk about God as creator, as the ruler, as the maker, we must see him as the Father. And we must go back to eternity past before any act of creation in order to see this. Before there was a created world, there was God. Before there were any created beings, any created things, there was one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this God was and is and shall always be triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God eternally existing in three persons. So before we seek to know God in any other way, we must understand that he is triune. And there is nothing in this world, this is a sidebar, not in my notes, I hope we don't go over. There's nothing in creation that we can point to and say God is like this. There is nothing in creation that has the nature that God has. No apple 
water, whatever you want to pick. There's nothing in creation that we can point to and say God's like that. So how do you explain the Trinity to a six-year-old? The same way you explain it to a 36-year-old. There is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are people of faith, and we call people to believe what God's word says. Sidebar, got distracted. I get worked up over that. So before we seek to know God in any other way, we must understand that he is triune. And when we go back into eternity past, what we see, what we discover is God the Father loving his son Jesus in the spirit. That's what Jesus said in John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you want to know what God was doing before he created angels, before he created this world, before he created this universe, before he created Saturn and Jupiter and the Milky Way? Before God was doing anything else in the universe, he was loving his son. John 17, 24, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This means that God is a loving father through and through. God the Father is love. Father is not a job description of God. He created this world as a loving, selfless, giving father. He rules as a loving, selfless, giving father. He creates as a loving, selfless, giving father. All that God the Father does, he does as a father. Yes, make no mistake about it. He is the sovereign creator. Yes, he created this world through Jesus as the preacher of Hebrews tells us at the end of verse two, but he sovereignly creates as father. So what makes us delight in him and enjoy him and behold him with wonder and awe as the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe? What makes us delight in his providence, in his sovereignty? What makes us affirm with joy the Westminster Confession of Faith when it defines God's providence? What makes us delight in God's sovereignty? Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith defines God's providence or his sovereignty. It says this, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. What makes us delight in that description of God? What makes us enjoy him and behold him with wonder and awe as the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe? What makes us delight in his providence, delight in his sovereignty? The answer, the very fact that he does all of these things as a father. That's what causes us to rejoice and delight in his providence. He is sovereign over everything as a father. Therefore, understand this. What happens in your life does not happen because there's some cold, detached, unemotional, sovereign ruler and creator wreaking havoc in your life. 
What happens in your life is under the orchestration and the care and the direction of a loving heavenly father. A loving heavenly father who just so happens to be the sovereign ruler of the universe. And this all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign father was loving his son Jesus in eternity past. And Jesus, God's son, and the writer of Hebrews would say to you today, look into God's fatherly heart and see how boundlessly he loves you. Before God ever created, before he ever created the universe, before anything else, the Christian God was a loving father, loving his son in the spirit. That means then that God is not primarily creator or ruler. Please understand that because it will change how you read the Bible. It will change how you read Genesis 1. He is first a father. He is a father through and through. He reigns as father. The sovereign one who reigns over the entire universe, over every atom, every molecule, every particle, every star, every planet, every nation, every state, every city, every roundabout, every stop sign, that God is first a father. That ought to comfort your heart, Christian. As Martin Luther said, we may look into his fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, setting them aglow with thankfulness. It should warm your heart, Christian, and set it aglow with thankfulness. You have a father who is graciously and tenderly directing every step of your life. You have a caring father who is working all things for your good. I know some people have had terrible fathers and I'm sorry to hear that because this was not my case. I have an incredible father. He is loving and caring and giving. He and my mother are the most giving people I know. My father loves his kids. He loves his grandkids. He loves his family. He provided for us. He cared for us. He raised us. He taught us how to work hard, not be lazy, never make excuses. By God's grace, I have the best dad in the world. That may not be your story, and I'm sorry to hear that. But don't let your experience of your earthly father paint your picture of your heavenly father. I think Kelly Capick is right. He has his finger on the pulse of how many of us view God the Father. He says this, Unfortunately, many Christians often have a distorted view of the heavenly father we tend to view him as angry and full of wrath toward us. While we imagine Jesus as the one who loves us, the Father is portrayed as full of hesitation toward us, distant at best, furious at worst. It is as if Jesus pleads with the Father to put up with us and to let us live, perhaps even against the Father's desire. We often view Jesus as the kind person of the Trinity, with the Father only wanting us punished. Is the father, in fact, really reluctant to show tenderness towards people? According to John Owen, the whole movement of the biblical drama of redemption points in a different direction. Jesus is not the one who convinces the father to love us, but rather the son of God becomes incarnate in light of the father's eternal and free love toward us. The father is not at odds with the son but rather God the Father is love and out of his love he sent his son to die for our sins. 
While the work of Christ is all important for redemption, it does not make the Father love us, but is rather the outgrowth of God's love. Christian, you have a heavenly Father who has been loving his son Jesus for all of eternity. And out of that love, he created this world through the son whom he loves in order to share his boundless and bottomless love with his children. Let that truth shape your view of God the Father because this is who he is. He loves He gives, he shares, he is not stingy with his love. He moves out to others because he is love. As John says in 1 John 4, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God, that's God the Father, sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God the Father is love. Therefore, God the Father loves. And the proof of God the Father's love is that he sent Jesus to obey the law for us and to die for our sins. So God loves because he himself is love. God gives because he himself is love. How does God love? He loves by giving. How does God love? He loves by giving, by giving himself. So when God sent Jesus to live and die for sinners and rebels like us, it was just a part of what he has always been doing, loving. God has always been loving and delighting in his son Jesus and that spills over to us in the incarnation. And that love will spill over to us for all of eternity because the Greek word that the writer of Hebrews uses here for world, when he says, through whom also he created the world, that word for world is literally ages. God the Father, through his son Jesus, created the ages, plural, through whom he also created the ages. Now, what does that even mean? What are the ages that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? I think, one, it's eternity past, The time and era, if you can use those words, when God was loving his son Jesus in the spirit and that time and eternity passed when God created angels. But it's also talking about the old covenant, which is the context here in Hebrews. That time and era when God was pointing to his son Jesus in all of the sacrifices and rituals and laws, etc. But it's also, he's saying, that we're part of the age now of the new covenant, the time and era when Jesus came and fulfilled all of those Old Testament shadows and prophecies and types and promises through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his return. But it's also referring to eternity future, that time and era in the new heavens and new earth when we will be swept up in God's eternal love forever and we will glorify and enjoy him forever. I think that's what the writer means when he uses ages. Through Jesus, God the Father created all time as we know it. And eternity, which we are also anticipating, is also referred to as ages. Because what does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, 
In other words, why did God save you, Christian? So that in the coming ages, plural, that should cause your brain to hurt, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why God saved you, Christian. Eternity with the triune God in the new heavens and new earth is going to be so incredible, so wonderful, so out of this world that Paul has to refer to it in the plural, ages. And what will God be doing for all of eternity? He will be showing the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save you, Christian? so that he can show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We will be swept up in God's love for Jesus permanently, without wavering, without diminishing, forever. Michael Reeves says, for eternity, the word was spoken out telling of a God of overflowing life. For eternity, the son was cherished, telling of a God of bottomless love. For eternity, Jesus was cherished by his father. And for eternity, we, his children, will be cherished by the God of bottomless love. We don't have to wait until eternity. We can get in on that bottomless love right now, that boundless love, by looking at the table that is set before us. The Lord's Supper is proof that right now and for eternity, plural, ages, God will be showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This table right here is full of the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Today, we will eat the bread and drink the cup and get swept up in God's love for Jesus and we will be reminded once again of the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me encourage you this morning to look to this table and sense how boundlessly God the Father loves you. Let's pray. Father, we come to the table this morning and we are reminded of our many sins. They're glaring at us. And we confess them and say, forgive us, Father, for sinful thought, thoughts, words, deeds, and sinful motives driving all of those. And we look to your son by faith this morning And we thank you that because of your grace, Father, by grace we have been saved. You have united us to your son's life, death, and resurrection. We anticipate his return where we will be with you forever. It is all grace and therefore all glory is given to you. So forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and may we now eat and drink and be strengthened by your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.